Well, good morning to everybody. We uh, now have come to our last Sunday school lesson for a while. And we've run out of time before finishing the laws of purity and impurity. We've tried our best to make progress. Sometimes I feel like my feet are in molasses and it's January. Uh, but anyway, we are where we are. And so it's our last lesson before we resume in the fall. And in the fall, uh, you get the delight of listening to Dr. Brian Hand instead of me. It's a good thing to change things up because I'm sure you get tired of the same thing week after week. Yes, it's Yeagley again. Yes, it's Leviticus again. But I hope that as we've been doing this now, ever since the first part of January, that you are beginning to, uh, or even way past beginning to understand just how foundational uh, the Old Testament is to our New Testament understanding, just exactly how instructive God was with his people and still is today with his people. So I'll pick up, Lord willing, next January and hopefully finish Leviticus. All right, so let's do some review. Oh, oh by the way, too, I, I actually hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. I mean, it is <clears throat> my delight as never before to be able to dig in to a book of the Bible. Well, I, can, I can't say as never before because I've already done Genesis and Exodus, but when I was teaching... I just had a very finite amount of time to prepare for Sunday school. And now, I've got all week. What else do I have to teach? This is it. Wow. And so, it's been a lot of, a lot of uh, intense enjoyment for me to have the time to put into this class. All right, so let's do some review. Our main theme in this book is that holiness is essential for being in God's presence. This is what God's, if you will, please think of it as this way. This is his end game, being in the presence of his people and his people being in his presence. But notice not just anybody can be in God's presence. It requires something that is completely foreign to our human sinful natures. It's holiness. Now look, we might as well try to fly to the moon as achieve our own holiness. That's just impossible because we are, well... The thoughts of our heart, naturally speaking, are only evil continually. Just like people in the, in the, in the pre-flood condition uh, were experiencing, according to Genesis chapter 6, a case where it didn't matter how long they lived. Their hearts were the same. As a matter of fact, 
in the nearly 1,000 years of the average life expectancy before the flood, people were well-practiced at thinking evil thoughts, had lots of time to develop evil to the nth degree. And that's why God sent the flood. But his plan all along was to institute a relationship with Israel. And so he called Abraham, and he established with him a covenant. And that covenant now is taking fruition in the birth of a nation in the book of Exodus. Now we are in Leviticus. God desires to be their God, and he to be his people. And so Israel is now the people of God. How is God going to have fellowship with them? He chose to do it by having them build a tabernacle, uh, enabling Moses to to, uh, construct this and to see it come to fruition and everything in place, and then his, his glory filled the tabernacle. And he was dwelling right in the midst of his people. But how is holiness possible for us? God can dwell with mankind only through holy sacrifice. Sacrifice what God intends to deal with our sin so that we would trust that his provision for this sacrifice, which involved what? The shedding of innocent animals' blood applied to the correct altar and the altar of sacrifice. And he instituted what to us is a very complex and detailed sacrificial system. Why does it seem so complex to us? Well, because God is infinite, and his sacrificial system, being the infinite God he is, seems to us to be very exacting and very specific to be done very specifically. And even the slightest variation from that can result in the death of a priest if he's not careful, which we've already seen happen with Nadab and Abihu. Wow, this is a God who will not be trifled with. And yet, it's a God who redeems his people and wants to draw close to them. You might say, well, how can it be both ways? The answer to that is because that's how diverse our God is. He's infinite in his holiness. His character qualities are beyond what we can sometimes even imagine. And he might have two different aspects in his relationship with his people, And we might say, how can they both be true? The answer is, because God is a person. The most complex and incredible person in the universe. 
those of you who are parents. Was it ever the case that your child did something and made you angry? Angry enough to say, you know, you're not my kid anymore. I, you know, I'd like to go get another one that better <laughs> can behave better or, or uh, you know, who's not so rebellious or you know, whatever. No, your child's always going to be your child. And so, this is the way God is. He can love us and yet be very exacting about the relationship he has with us. And when we step out of line, he can be loving yet upset, very upset, even to the point of taking a person's life, as we've seen. But this is the way that God can dwell with sinful men. Sacrifice. And that reminds us that we have a greater sacrifice than what any Levitical priest offered. We have the sacrifice of our Savior for us, shedding his blood to cleanse us from sin. What a remarkable continuity there is between Old Testament and New. What was prefigured in the Old Testament now is a reality for us. But you know, if we don't understand the Old Testament that establishes the the sacrificial system, how are we really going to appreciate what God has done for us in Christ? We've seen the necessity for the shedding of the blood of an innocent animal, and then in the New Testament we see the shedding of the blood of the only perfect human being who ever lived. Oh, you say, well, what about Adam? He was perfect, but he sinned. Plunged the whole human race into sin. Not our Savior. Our Savior went through the same categories of temptation that Satan pulled on Eve. Eve was a perfect human being. She had never sinned. How do you get a perfect, sinless human being to sin? Satan had it all figured out. And he tried the same methodology on our Savior in the wilderness for 40 days. And our Savior stood firm and did not succumb to Satan's temptations. He did that to qualify himself to die in our place on Calvary's cross, shed his blood once for all. What can we do except stand in awe of a of a sacrifice of that magnitude. It's beyond what we could ever imagine. And yet, we can respond to his grace by humbly trusting in Christ for our salvation, that our sin can be forgiven, and that we can, we can have 
a positional holiness in our Savior. Remarkable. Point two, holy sacrifice can be offered only by holy priests who now stand all as types of our high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the ministry of these priests was to be very exacting. They were not to decide, oh, it's up to me to decide how to offer all these sacrifices. No, it's not. It is up to you to do them just as Moses has instructed by the command of the Lord. And and therefore, we recognize that this is what our Savior fulfilled. Have you ever noted as you're reading through the Gospels that Christ will will say, it is necessary that I go here, or it's necessary that I visit these people over here. It's necessary that I say these words right now at this time. You get the idea that the Father had everything our Savior did all planned out, everything he said, everywhere he went, and of course the sum of it all, the summit of our Savior's entire life was the appointment he had on the cross. And then he rose from the dead and ascended on high. And our sacrifice is now complete. There is nothing left to be fulfilled. And Christ could hang on the cross and he could say, it is finished. Literally, it has been finished. Nothing more now. Shed my blood. I'm going to yield my spirit back to the Father. I'm going to rise again in three days. And as I'm ascending into heaven, I'm going to assure you that just as you saw me leave, I'm coming back someday. Maybe today. I hope today. We'll meet him in the clouds. We've got plenty of clouds today. This could be the day. Point three, holy priests teach discernment. Chapters 11 through 15. You see, God has not just left us to decide how we live this new life with him as our redeemer. No, he's teaching us a life that pleases me is a life of discernment, whereby I instruct you as a believer, and now you listen to what I say, and you put these things into practice in your life. Because it's very important that you live the way I have laid out for you in my word. And so we have seen already Uh, In chapter 11, God wants to tell us how we are to be separate from all that is less than his will for us. And we've seen in chapter 11, even in what God's Old Testament people ate, they were to show 
that they are willing and, and certainly paying a great zeal to what they could and could not eat. This set them apart from all the people surrounding them, which is exactly what God wanted to teach them. Don't be like the Canaanites. Ever since the day of Abraham, it has been God's desire to remove the Canaanites from the face of the earth unless they repent. But in the time, all the way from Abraham's time to now Moses' day, which is 900 years approximately, the Amorite, standing for the Canaanite, has not repented. Their idolatrous, sinful lifestyles have just gotten worse. And it's about time that God's patience runs out with the Canaanites. And so God wanted his people, Israel, to understand, you are different from the Canaanites. And it's going to affect every single aspect of your life. Nothing is exempted from this discernment. Do you ever find yourself, well, listening, for instance, to a message like we heard this morning and saying to yourself, hmm, can I just have one area of my life that is mine? Do I I have to show zeal in everything I do? Do I have to be concerned with serving the Lord exactly as he wants me to? The answer is yes. It's kind of like Isaiah says to the Lord, Lord, how long? (laughs) When the Lord told him what his ministry was going to be in chapter 6, how long, O Lord, is this something I'm going to do the rest of my life? The answer is, you've got it, Isaiah. No no taking R&R away from the front lines. You're to be on the front lines all the time. Let me tell you what. The people you minister to aren't going to pay heed to a single thing you say. I'm going to blind their eyes. I'm going to harden their hearts. I'm going to make their ears so they can't hear what you say with understanding. And you're going to do it till the land is desolate. And God has removed people far away. And it's going to be nothing but hardness of heart and disaster. Whoa. Now, hopefully then, God says to us, I give you lots of commands under the new covenant. Be sure to pay heed to them, to confess when you come short, and to live a life that's different from the world. And those who are walking a broad way that leads to destruction, he has called us to walk in a narrow way, very precisely, obeying him, loving him, serving him. All right, well, this morning, we have just a little bit of time left, so we're going to Uh, look at chapter 12. 
So now Moses moves from discernment what can be eaten to the consequences of childbirth. Remember that everything associated with birth and death in the, in the book of Leviticus has a potential for making us unclean. As a matter of fact, not just the potential, but in fact, reality is just living makes us unclean. You say, wow, is it, I thought I was forgiven of sin. Why, certainly, you have been. In Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ applied to our bankrupt account. And now, the Lord wants to take us experientially and transform the way we live so that day by day, our position in Christ becomes more of the reality of how we live. And we call that sanctification. Well, this is what God wanted for his people, Israel, as well. So, let's take a look, then, at how this works out in terms of the beginning of life. In this chapter, we're going to see how it works out in the ending of life. And we've already said that this basically is a way of bookending life. If if the beginning of life, everything uh, regarding the beginning of life causes uncleanness, anything about the ending of life causes uncleanness, the implication is, and everything in between birth and death causes uncleanness. Uncleanness adheres to the human condition like mud to an unclean animal called a pig in a wallow. He said, surely I'm not that bad off. Come on now, give me a break. You mean to tell me I have to be confessing my sin? I have to be loving the word of God and the God of the word and be ever careful to examine my own life and to come clean with the Lord when I sin? This is my life? The answer is, this was the Israelites' life. This is our life, too. All right, let's take a look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she will be unclean seven days. As the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. All right, so there you have a total of 40 days. Seven days she couldn't have contact with anyone. For the rest of the 33 days, she couldn't 
be worshiping God at the tabernacle, but at least she could uh, be living with the, the other people and her family, and uh, she didn't make other people unclean in the 33 days. You say, wow, 40 days. That's one and a third months. But wait a minute. What happens if she gives birth to a girl? Well, guess what? It's twice as long. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Now we're up to 80 days, almost three months, where she's excluded from the tabernacle worship. And you might ask yourself the question, why, oh, why did the birth of a girl result in twice as long of a consequence of being unclean? Well, I've read a lot of commentaries on this passage. And basically, some people go in many different directions, in my opinion, that none of them make any sense. The worst one I ran across was because Israel was a a sexist, patriarchal society. Want to make it uh, like the current women's liberation movement and just bad, bad, bad. Aren't you glad we've come a long way since this Old Testament times? Blah, blah, blah. Even some conservatives, conservatives, quote, unquote, seem to go that way. Very bad idea. All right, so if none of the None of the views satisfied me as I read them. I posed the question to my wife. What do you think, Linda? Why did the woman experience twice as long in her impurity if she gave birth to a girl instead of a guy? What do you think she said? I've got a wonderful, spiritual, intelligent, with-it wife. And she gave me an answer that I hadn't even thought of. See, it's good to have wives like that you can ask questions to. She said the following, Well, perhaps this is going back to Genesis chapter 3, and... God wants to remind his people that it was Eve who disobeyed the Lord, gave the fruit to Adam, he ate and disobeyed the Lord, and our whole race was plunged into sin. And now here's a reminder of that, that the, the, when the woman bears a daughter, She has to wait twice as long for her purification to be over. 
I thought, when she said that, that answer, I thought, wow, I don't remember reading that anywhere in the commentary literature. That's really good. That's a good, that's a good possibility. All right. Ladies, what do you think? You know, I never had, we never had the privilege of having a daughter. We had three sons. But now, as a grandfather, I've got five granddaughters and five grandsons. And who are the funnest people in my, in our grandchildren's uh, uh, even distribution? Five girls, five guys. Oh, especially for grandpas. The granddaughters are the ones who really capture your heart. Oh, man. I, I, I've, my son sent me a picture not too long ago. Uh, they live in the area. And I have a granddaughter here in the area whose name is Adelaide. She's five and a half years old. And he sent me a picture of me walking hand in hand with Adelaide through the woods when we were out scouting for deer. Yes, it's true. Even from a young age, Adelaide's always want to be included in the idea of deer hunting. Of course, he's way too young to take her out and say, okay, here you go, here's a uh, 6.5 Creedmoor. So uh, when you see a deer step out, you just get those crosshairs just behind his front shoulder and squeeze the trigger, and you can shoot yourself a deer. No, she's not old enough for that. But she doesn't want to be left out of anything. And so here we are walking through the woods, and she takes her little precious hand and puts it in my hand, and she walks hand in hand with Grandpa, Okay, now look, that's just an experience like, I mean, how can you beat that? You want to tell me? How can you beat that? So, you know, it's, it's not the fact that little girls are less wonderful than grandsons. No, no, no. It's just the opposite. Like, my granddaughters could probably ask me, for anything. And if I could, I'd give it to them. Don't take advantage of that now. If you're, if you're a granddaughter, uh, it's probably about the same way with, with, with uh, women whose sons bear sons. Uh, there's something about the grandsons. But no, this is, this is unrelated to how wonderful little girls are. Remember that song? Oh, it's a law, it's an old song. Song. It goes something like da 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 uh, Thank Heaven for Little Girls. Do you know that song? Okay. Marilyn, you want to sing that for us? <laughs> okay. It is I think my wife is right. It's a it's going back to to remind us that where Satan came from was the disobedience of Eve. Yes, it's true. Adam was the, was the head of the woman. It was his sin 
that God credits in, in terms of the whole sin of affecting the whole race of Adam. It's not the whole race of Eve. It's the race of Adam. Yet, I think we, we see the influence of Genesis 3 here. Or perhaps it's due to the hope that the girl will someday, someday bear children as well. And when she does, then there are more sinners born into the world. We sinners come into the world this way. Being born into the world through a woman. And therefore, this is a reminder that, yes, indeed, this woman someday that's just a little child will grow up and bear children And in anticipation of that, there's this almost like prepayment or pre-effect of the fact that she will be a child-bearer too. Okay, anybody want to suggest another reason why this birth of a girl results in twice as long of an impurity as a guy? Now's your chance. Seeing no ideas, uh, we'll move on. But if you come up with an idea after Sunday school, it just hits you, be sure to come and tell me. All right, note, there is no difference in the offerings that the mother makes for her boy or for her girl. The offerings are the same. The length of the impurity is different, but exactly no difference between the offering she brings for a girl versus a guy. Verse 8, Leviticus 12, 8. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the, at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb of one year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for the sin offering. We've already been over the significance of those offerings. And she shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law of her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for the burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now entirely fit for going to worship God at the tabernacle, in full restoration of fellowship with, the, with her people, a wonderful thing has taken place. Notice, God even cares for what we can afford. He's not going to ask an impoverished lady to bring a lamb. That would have been too extravagant for somebody who is basically very poor. And so the Lord makes provision for that. What kind of conclusion can we come to that today? Can you think of anything in the New Testament 
that specifies something for wealthy people and another thing for not-so-wealthy people? How should we give? According to our ability. How much do you have to give? God doesn't expect you to give a million dollars this year to the work of the Lord if you've got a salary of 60000 a year. No, he expects you to give as he has prospered you. So, so there are some people in our assembly here. God has massively uh, blessed them. There are other people, and they struggle financially. God doesn't expect uh, giving on the same level for everyone in the assembly. Application for us, bearing a child is a joyous event, worthy of celebration. Psalm 127, verse 3, says that children are heritage of the Lord. Blessed is a man who has his quiver full of them. The fact that childbirth brought ritual impurity does not diminish that joy. But the Old Testament often makes a correlation between ritual impurity and moral uncleanness. And so you have in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, and especially uh, evident in Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, that ritual impurity was to stand as representative of moral impurity. So this means that being fastidious about ritual impurity for the Israelite should remind us about the even the more important aspect of being right with the Lord morally. And so let's, let's turn, for instance, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verse 1. And here, here now is basically a good summary of what living the Christian life is for us these days. Since we have these promises, beloved, what promises? Well, the promises in chapter 6 about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, being separate especially from false religion. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If that's not the best summary of what it is to live the Christian life, I don't know what is. So, let's get at it. Let's realize we don't live a pie-in-the-sky life. We live on the front lines of spiritual warfare. And it won't do to absent ourselves and get our R&R way far away from the, from the front lines and opt out of the battle that God has established for us to live and to wage. We've got to 
We've got a warrior here in our midst, Matt Templeton. And Matt, thank you for your service to our country. He knows what battle's like. We must face the same battle spiritually. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, thankful for the book of Leviticus, and for the lessons it holds for us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.